you know, I, I know that I've been shot. I can feel I've been shot. One of the first rounds actually hits me in the head. And um, because of that, I see this bright white light and I'm a little dazed and confused. And then, it, you know, all of a sudden something just snaps in me and my training kicks in. And I'm like, hey, I'm fucking angry. You know, I got to stop this motherfucker from killing me. I got to stop this threat right now. And I'm going to fucking die if I stay in this car. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benito, and we have with us today one of our Street Cop survivors. You're in the club, right, Ryan? Yeah, for sure. Not a good club to qualify to go into, that's for sure, but a good club if you are qualified yeah. to yeah. go into, no doubt about it. But today we have with us one of our guys from the group, the group that is designed for and was created to, to support the men and women in law enforcement who are significantly injured in the line of duty as Ryan meets the criteria. But without further ado, Mr. Ryan Frank, thanks for being here, brother. Hey, thanks for having me, Dennis. I appreciate it. So why don't you give us your bio? Where did you grow up? How did you get into law enforcement? And then we'll go into the story. Yeah. So uh, I grew up in Northern California, uh, about 20 minutes north of Sacramento in a community called Los Molinas. And um, I'm still pretty close to that area now. And oddly enough, my uh, shooting took place in that community where I grew up. Um, so, yeah, I started my law enforcement career in 2011 with the Tama County Sheriff's Department after graduating the academy in 2010. It was a rough time period, uh, the economy and everything. And my uh, hometown department was the uh, first place that gave me an opportunity. So I started my career as a deputy sheriff, just uh, signed a patrol kind of a smaller agency, um, only about 50 sworn uh, deputies that work there. So that gave me the opportunity to, you know, work hard, be proactive, and kind of make a name for myself and get into some specialty assignments. So uh, in 2013, I was fortunate enough to be on our SWAT team. It's an interagency SWAT team. And that gave me a lot of tools, um, you know, just constant training, uh, going to hot calls or call outs. And, uh, you know, obviously spend a lot of time behind a gun and learning tactics, tactical medicine, you know, is obviously, I think, a big reason why I'm here today. And then also in 2013, later in the year, I was uh, selected to be a canine handler. So um, spent five years of my career handling a dog, my canine partner, Booker. And uh, yeah, part of the best, you know, time of my career was handling a dog. You know, I think uh, it's it's one of the best opportunities for any cop to be partnered with a canine, especially when you're working in a rural area, man, just having that support. Uh, so I really love that. And then um, spent a little bit of time in detectives in 2019 prior to lateraling to my new agency, which is the Reading Police Department, bigger agency, only about you know 30 minutes north of where I was before. Um, and I've been there since 2020. And now I'm in a specialized unit. It's our special services unit is what we call it. And so it's it's pretty flexible. I get the opportunity to be proactive. Reading PD is a uh, still a very proactive police department in Northern California. And uh, that's the approach that our department takes. So it's a, it's a great place to work. People are under the impression that all of California is essentially San Francisco. Can you please shed some light on the fact that that's not true? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, it's crazy because, you know, you hear that all the time about California. And honestly, where we live is freaking beautiful. Uh, Northern California is a beautiful place. And yes, we do kind of struggle with some of the legislation that kind of restricts what we do. And I think uh, not only in California, but across the board, it's changing. And be, being a police officer is getting harder and harder. You have to have so many more tools. Um, I think a lot of times we relied on the tools on our belt or our gun to get us out of trouble. Or maybe if you're a canine heart, uh, handler, you, you have your partner to get you out of trouble. And, you know, now more than ever, I think they want us to use our hands. You know, you gotta, you gotta be able to deal with problems with your mouth and with your hands, you know, and I think the calls that we're going to are changing. So you just have to be very adaptable as a, as a police officer nowadays, and you got to stay up to speed on all the new laws and sorry, getting back to your question, but yeah, for instance, you know, I, I can't pull into a Dutch Bros or a Starbucks without the person in front of me buying my coffee or, you know, everywhere we go, pull up at a stoplight, the citizens are rolling down the window. Hey, thank you, officer, for your service. We appreciate you. That's all we hear in our community. Um, it's a very small percentage 
uh, the people that don't support the police. And unfortunately, those people are the most vocal, I think, online and to the media to share their negative experiences. But I would say a majority of our community that uh, we support is, you know, overwhelmingly supportive of us and what we do. That's awesome. Well, I guess we might as well get to it. The meat and potatoes of why we're here. Yeah. So um, might as well start when, where, how, why. Yeah. So uh, July 7th, 2018, um, I was working swing shifts. So I worked 2 p.m. to 2 a.m. I was a canine handler at the time. It was my Friday. I think it was a Saturday night because uh, I was working kind of the back end of the week. And my wife, who is a dispatcher with our agency, worked day shift that day. Jesus. So she got work at uh, 6 p.m. And I went and picked her up and she was going to do a ride along with me. We had our truck and trailer out front of our house hooked up. We were ready to take the kids on a camping trip that weekend. And, uh, you know, I was kind of looking forward to the weekend. But uh, I was always, you know, and still am a proactive cop. So if I was 10-8, then I was freaking ready to get after it, you know, and look for a good bad guy to take to jail. So after I picked up Haley, we're just kind of cruising this community, Los Molinas, where I grew up. It's a small town, only about 2,000 to 2,500 people. There's one stoplight in the town. Um, there's some convenience stores, some gas stations. And, um, but it's also a community that has some poverty. So, you know, a lot of our you know, criminal activity would take place in this community. And specifically, uh, there was this parolee, a guy that's on parole that was wanted um, for some fresh charges and a parole violation that I was looking for. So Haley and I are uh, cruising along. She's in my passenger seat. I got my dog in the back, Booker. And we drive by this Dollar General gas station. I'm sorry, it's not a gas station. It's more of a convenience store. And uh, she actually points out to me that there's a subject removing his rear license plate. He has like a screwdriver at the rear of his car and he's taking his license plate off his car. So obviously that is extremely suspicious, uh, indicative of criminal behavior. I think if you asked any normal citizen, if they've ever removed their license plate in public, they would say, no, you know, that's odd. So Haley and I, I pull in, um, I kind of park directly behind his vehicle. Um, and I exit it's along a busy highway, highway 99. And so there's a lot of traffic. He doesn't actually see me until I exit my vehicle and I start to approach him. And I kind of almost take him by surprise. And he's still at the rear of his vehicle. And uh, I just make contact with him and essentially tell him, hey, man, what are you doing? You know, why are you removing your license plate? And he doesn't really have a good answer for that. You know, at first, he kind of goes, oh, well, it's my license plate. I can take it off if I want to. Right. And I kind of explained to him the vehicle code and the fact that it's suspicious what he's doing. And he actually agrees with me. Uh, he listens to my reasoning and he's like, yeah, I guess this is a little suspicious. So, um, I immediately go to a pat search for weapons, uh, just by his behavior. Don't locate any weapons. And as I'm patting him down, I ask for consent to search him. He gives me consent to search his person, uh, remove a little bit of marijuana from his person. And that's about it. And then, um, I, because he's removing his plate, I ask him if it's his vehicle. He says, yes. He walks over to his driver's side and pr produces the registration from the glove box. As he leans in, I get an overwhelming smell of marijuana coming from the vehicle. And, um, I'm watching his hands, you know, always got to watch the hands cause they're deadly. And, you know, so I'm not really paying attention to any place other than the car than other than where he's reaching. I do remember seeing like a big blanket in the back seat. Uh, kind of covering a bunch of things, but at that time I didn't know what. So obviously there's some, you know, indicators there for me, you know, with the marijuana and everything. And in 2018, the laws were a little differently at that time. If you had an overwhelming uh, amount of marijuana coming from a vehicle, you could search it. Now it's a little more gray. Um, you have to be a little more, more articulate to search a car just for marijuana. We almost try not to, we try and establish some other kind of PC. So my dog was dual certified. Uh, to alert to the odor of narcotics, including marijuana at that time. So um, I knew that if I was to run my dog around the car, he was going to alert. So I, in my mind, I had already formulated probable cause to search the car. So um, I pulled Brahas back to his vehicle, or I'm sorry, to my push bumper. And I asked him for consent. Uh, he doesn't give me consent. He says, no, I'd rather you not search my car. But I explained to him that I'm going to because of the probable cause that I had just established. And he kind of reluctantly says, okay, you know, I'll sit here while you search my car. And a question I get asked a lot is, um, 
you know, and, and it's, it's complacency on my end for sure, but I didn't ask for a back and just to kind of lay the foundation of the agency that I work for. So I'm working swing shift. There's another deputy that works swing shift. He actually works noon to midnight, I believe. And then we have three cops that are working graves who would have came on at 6 PM. And this is about seven 30 at night, if I didn't say that. Um, so it's still light outside because it's summertime. Um, but I got in the habit of not asking for a back with every contact I did because I did so many and you didn't really want to be that guy, you know, in my mind, like, Oh man, I'm always asking for a back. I'm always relying on other people to come back me. And that's a terrible thing for cops to get in that habit of. And I don't have that habit now. Um, and this, you know, incident is a big reason why. And so I don't ask for a back. I have him sit on my push bumper and um, I walk over to his rear passenger door and go to open it to uh, begin my search. As soon as, as soon as I do that, he uh, starts, I hear the doors lock to his car and he's holding his car keys in his hand. So I essentially pause what I'm doing. I walk over to him and I try and get the keys from him and tell him to hand his keys over. He kind of starts walking towards the driver's side door and says, Oh, I'll just unlock the car for you. You know? And I'm like, I'm telling him to stop. No, I want your keys. And, you know, the fight's on from there. He becomes noncompliant. I try and take him into custody right there. However, he escapes my grasp. I remember he was wearing a gray T-shirt and I grab his T-shirt and uh, I'm trying to pull him to the ground. His T-shirt kind of rips off of his body and he continues to dart towards that driver's side door. He's able to get into his car and he shuts the door and he locks it. His vehicle had like limo tent in the front. So I couldn't see in his car at all. And I hear the car start. So I immediately retreat back to my vehicle. And um, the way that my vehicle was positioned, it was almost like if he started to back up out of the parking space, because he was the nose of his car was facing the front doors of the business. Then I would have, you know, if he would have backed it up 10 feet, I could have T-boned him, so to speak. So we're kind of like at a T um, the way that I'm facing him. So I hop in my car and Haley's still in the passenger seat. She had put out radio traffic um, when I got into a struggle with him. Code three back, subject's trying to leave. Haley's code three back, subject's trying to leave. Confirming code three back at Dollar General. Three nine is requesting code three back. Um, So I had units responding to me, but unfortunately for me, the closest unit, even on a code three run was probably 10 minutes away. Um, So he starts to back up and I see his window. Uh, his driver's side windows start to lower. And when he does this, he, it stops about four to six inches from going completely down. Uh, I'm now in my driver's seat facing him, facing his profile. And I see the muzzle of a rifle, immediately recognizable as an AK-47. I can still see the rifle clear in my, clear in my mind today, um, immediately just presenting that. And I think I just immediately said like, oh, fuck, you know, like this, this can't be happening. And then simultaneously, as I'm thinking that he starts shooting and I'm getting heavy rounds from this AK 47 coming through my windshield, coming through my dash. I lean over to my right side towards Haley and I try and shove her as far down as I can. And simultaneously, I can feel myself getting shot uh, through, wow. the, through the vehicle. It's just round after round after round after round. He shot 71 times um, in a about 30 second time span. So I'm leaning over to my right side. I'm right-handed. So I'm drawing my gun, which is extremely difficult. You know, I got my center console and everything. I'm kind of on top of Haley and I'm able to draw my gun. And I remember sticking my gun up over the windshield because in my mind, I wanted to put some suppressive rounds down range just to stop him from shooting. And this is a crowded parking lot. I mean, there's people everywhere, um, especially this time of day, um, the summertime, the highway's right there. And he is just letting loose. And I remember thinking like, almost feeling sorry for myself. Like I'm sitting there going, gosh, I'm such an idiot. I'm going to die and not even get to shoot my gun. and you know, just almost like having this little pity party, having a lot of fear, you know, you know, I, I know that I've been shot. I can feel I've been shot. One of the first rounds actually hits me in the head. And, um, 
because of that, I see this bright white light and I'm a little dazed and confused. And then it, you know, all of a sudden something just snaps in me and my training kicks in and I'm like, Hey, I'm fucking angry. You know, I got to stop this motherfucker from killing me. I got to stop this threat right now. And I'm going to fucking die if I stay in this car. So I roll back to my left. I open my driver's side door. I exit. Obviously he sees what's going on. You know, he's got a perfect view of me and he's only about 10 yards away from me. And, um, so I can, I can tell that the rounds are directed towards me. Well, in my mind, I had tried to shoot when I was in the car. Um, I, I never did, but I, I thought I was having like a gun malfunction. Like my gun wasn't working. So I immediately dropped to a knee outside my door. I do a tap rack with my pistol. I eject a live round on the ground, but then I come up to shoot kind of at an angle at a 45 degree angle over my hood. Cause he had continued backing up. So now he's almost closer to the passenger side where Haley's seated, seated in my car. So I try and shoot over my hood. Um, he was waiting for me to pop up and immediately get some rounds off. So as I retreat, I get shot a couple more times outside my car. Um, I'm still with it. I can still think. So I retreat around to the backside of my car. And as I'm doing that, I can see the rounds are coming through my glass. They're even blowing out my rear hatch. So rounds are zipping over my head. And as I round the corner to the passenger side, coming around the backside of my rear hatch area, I just immediately come up on gun and start firing and advancing towards him. And that was the game changer in this incident. As soon as I started shooting back and was putting accurate rounds down range, it completely changed his demeanor. Um, I remember one of the first rounds that I shot on the move, advancing towards him, shatters that little bit of glass that was up on his uh, driver's side door window. And then I see, I can see him throw the gun to his passenger seat and try and manipulate his gear shift. And he's trying to get the hell out of there. Like now that I'm shooting back, he doesn't want to get into a gunfight. He just wants to leave. And so I'm advancing towards his vehicle. I'm continuously shooting on the move and just shooting as many rounds accurately as I can into that driver's side door area where he's sitting, where he's sitting. I also see out of the corner of my eye, uh, this fuzzy brown object kind of run by me. And it wasn't until like minutes after the incident, when I played it back in my mind, I went, oh shit, that was my dog. You know, my dog had gotten out during the chaos and had tried to actually window deploy as he's driving off. And so my dog had continued to chase his car. So he takes off as I'm shooting and he drives and kind of hops up curb and gets to 99 and goes northbound uh, towards Red Bluff, and uh, which is the city north of Los Molinas. And that was the worst feeling in the world. You know, watching this guy that just tried to murder you and murder your wife and endangered our public is now fleeing at a high rate, of, high rate of speed away. And that sucked. I mean, I'm sitting there going, gosh, dang it, man. Like, how could I not have stopped him in this parking lot? You know, now I'm thinking about the other officers that are going to have to deal with him. You know, the community, what's this guy going to do? You know, he's clearly homicidal. And, uh, you know, I kind of pushed pause for a second there and realized, you know, I'm shot. Uh, he's a, he's fleeing. Uh, I need to check on my wife, my dog's somewhere. I have a lot of work to do. So um, I immediately had to just take action. So I go back to the passenger side. I don't put any, and at this time I hadn't put any radio traffic out. Um, you know, there's a time to put out radio traffic. That was probably the time to do it. You obviously don't want to be in a gunfight and be on the radio, you know, you want to deal with the problem. But um, I had to check on my wife because in my mind, when I opened that door, she was going to be dead. Um, Cause I knew I was shot. I could feel blood running down my arms like a faucet. Um, I opened the door and Haley's reaction. I'll never forget the look on her face um, when she sees me is just total fear and talking to her afterwards, you know, she thought it was the suspect essentially coming back to finish her off. She knew I had gotten out of the vehicle and there was an exchange of gunfire, but I think she assumed I'd been killed and he was coming to finish her off. So when she saw me, you know, it was total fear and then total, like, you know, I think relief, um, that it was, that it was me. And so I asked her, Hey, are you okay? Are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm like, are you shot? And she says, no, at the time she had been shot. Um, but I think with all the adrenaline, she either didn't want to tell me or, um, really didn't know. Uh, she knew she had some pain in her back, but that was about it. 
And so I, she tells me she's not shot. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I tell her I'm good too. And she's like, no, you're fucked up. <laughs> That's what she tells me. She just keeps saying, no, you're fucked up. Like you're shot the fuck up. And I'm like, yeah, I am. But it was like, at that moment, I, I had this like clear thinking and I'm like, Hey, I can think I can breathe. So my lungs are good. I'm good. You know, I can deal with what I got going on. Um, so that gave me some confidence, you know, right then. And so I immediately, uh, I always keep quick clot and a tourniquet in my pocket. And then I keep more uh, medical supplies in my glove box. If somebody doesn't have a trauma kit in their vehicle set up, ready to go, then they need to right away. And not only that, know where that shit is and pull it out once a week and fuck around with it. So, you know, you know, Hey, this is how I'm going to do this under stress. Because if you're not doing it all the time and the first time you go to grab your freaking your uh, trauma kit out and you can't even remember where you put it because you stacked your patrol bag on top of it or your paperwork on top of it. That's the wrong time, you know, to, to test that shit out. So luckily for me, I knew exactly where my stuff was. I immediately pulled out my quick clot because I knew that I didn't, uh, my injuries were in my back, my head, uh, and my scapula. So my shoulder blade back here. And then, uh, fortunately for me, my vest had stopped two of the rounds, uh, even though it was a rifle round and my vest wasn't rated for that. It was just the, the fact that the bullet had traveled through other objects and had slowed down enough to where my vest actually stopped it. So I immediately start tending to myself medical wise. Haley, uh, grabs my radio in the car. It won't work. She tries to put out some radio traffic. I, I also, at that time, grabbed my uh, handheld radio and put out 1199 shots fired. You know, I get no response. 1199 shots fired. I'm putting it out. There's, there's no response from dispatch. So what had happened is I wore a Bluetooth lapel mic that connected to an earpiece. Well, uh, it had been shot by a bullet, so it was broken. Uh, I had been shot just above my left ear. So uh, my earpiece is gone and I'm not hearing anything from dispatch. So they could hear me. I just couldn't hear their radio traffic back. And my radio in the car had been disabled by a bullet. So it's not working. Oh, shit. Left. Dollar General on 99W. 7921. So Haley... Gets her cell phone and she immediately calls dispatch, the back line. And the first time she calls, obviously the call center's erupting with uh, 911s from the citizens nearby. And now he's on the highway, so he's driving recklessly. Um, so she gets hung up on the first time she calls, um, but she calls back and she does an absolutely phenomenal job. Um, you know, seconds after this happened, she's, she's providing dispatch with the vehicle description, the direction of travel, the fact that he's armed with an AK 47. Uh, he took his plate off, so it's going to be a vehicle that's, you know, missing its plate. Sure, so I'm starting to help you. It's me. It's me, Haley. Haley, what? I need to speak with somebody in dispatch if I can. Okay, hold on. Hold on just a minute. I'll put you on with Wilma. Haley, we're answering you, but you guys aren't hearing us. What's, how's he doing? He's okay. He's been shot a couple of times. Did he hear, or did you hear that the guy went northbound? No, and what, what color was that vehicle? I was an AK-47. Uh-huh. Gray in color, gray and silver. He took his plate off. He was in the middle of taking his plate off. So there's no plate on it. Units responding to the shots fired. The suspect went northbound on 99E. He is in a gray Honda. He took his plates off, and we're getting multiple calls of reckless drivers headed past Eldred. Please, did you copy that? Okay, he's AK with an AK-47. Yes. And be advised the subject is armed with an AK-47. Got it. Okay. All right, bye. Bye. And fortunately for us, um, we're receiving multiple calls of a reckless driver in the area that he was traveling. So officers were able to pinpoint him and kind of trail him in a pursuit until he ultimately crashes um, and died. So since we got there already to the crash, yeah. did he die as a result of his crash or did he we actually drop shots on him? Yeah. So he was shot. I shot him five times. Um, I think I shot 17 rounds at him and he was hit by five of the bullets. Um, most of the bullets just because I was carrying a 40, a Glock 40 gen 22 and, um, the, or I'm sorry, model 22, but 
most of the rounds that hit his door just didn't penetrate enough to cause any damage. But one of the rounds, I think it's probably the round that shattered that uh, the glass actually went through both of his lungs. And so as he's driving, he's bleeding to death. And it's the typical thing where the doctor says, oh, yeah, he should have died 30 seconds you know, after for this injury. But it was actually uh, 13 minutes later, uh, he's able to drive for 13 minutes before he eventually crashes and bleeds out and dies. Well, good for him. Yeah. Okay, let's go back a little bit to where we were before you concluded it. So she's on the phone. She gives the information. What happens next? Um, for me on scene, uh, I'm just treating my injuries. There's actually a good Samaritan that had some uh, military experience in combat medicine. So he actually is helping me. I'm talking him through packing my wounds. My worst wound was one of the rounds actually went through and hit uh, kind of under my armpit, hits my rear scapula or my left scapula, stops it at the bone, but then it exits. So I have an entry and an exit. So that was the round that was bleeding the worst. So I'm actually talking him through packing my wound. And I'm like, hey, bro, you got to like push your push this quick clot into my wound and just keep packing it until you run out of quick clot and then hold it tight. And so he's able to do that. Uh, you know, thank God for this guy just talking about people in our community that support us. I mean, I had a crowd of people around me that were trying their best to either give support or, you know, help me. You know, mostly they're just in the way, but they're trying, you know. And so I'm actually able, he's actually able to get my bleeding controlled on scene. Um, that way medics can arrive. Haley kind of looks like she's, um, you know, needs something to do in my mind. Cause I'm like, I don't want her to see me like this. So I tell her, Hey, go find Booker. And she's like, are you serious? Like he ran down the road. So, uh, she kind of walks around a little bit looking for Booker and then comes back and she's like, I have no idea where he is. Well, one of the units that was responding to me actually sees this Malinois running down the middle of the road and stops and pulls over and goes, Holy shit, that's Frank's dog. So he throws it uh, in his car and drives it to the scene. And so I'm just waiting for medical to get there. At some point, Haley asks one of the deputies who arrives on scene with me, you know, she's like, Hey, can you look at my back? And that's when we discovered that she had been actually grazed by two bullets. Uh, they had grazed um, just on either side of her spine. She got hit twice. So she now needs some medical care. And luckily for her, um, fortunately, you know, she only had to get some stitches and a little bit of bullet fragments removed and uh, she was good to go. Um, so after that, you know, we are just waiting for medical to arrive on scene. I'm hearing information that, you know, he crashed, but that's kind of the only info that I get at that time. I get loaded up into, into an ambulance. I get some drugs. So I start feeling a little better and they drive me code three to the nearest trauma center, which is about 20 minutes away or so. What was that ride like? Were they not deploying a helicopter or anything? So the helicopter would have taken longer. So somebody on scene, some medic on scene made the call, hey, let's just drive him via ground ambulance. He's stable. Um, I was pretty disappointed. I mean, you get shot, you want a helicopter ride, right? It's like, come on, you know, give me a helicopter ride out of this. Um, but no, I was down. It's like, hey, the quicker you can get me there. Cause I mean, you still have that worry, you know, the dust settles, the adrenaline's wearing off. You're kind of like, okay, shit. Like I got shot a few times. Like I know what this shit looks like. You know, I don't want to freaking die. You know, so yeah, get me there as quick as you can. You know, so on the way to the hospital, I'm a, I'm a little bit in and out of consciousness. Uh, I pull in, everything is kind of in a blur for the first like 20 minutes or so that I'm there. I don't really have a lot of memories of it. Um, and then at some point I get talked to by a doctor and he's like, hey man, you're you're stable, you're gonna be fine. Um they put me under to type, kind of do some type of exploratory surgery and do some stuff, but they ultimately didn't do any surgery. They tried to remove as many bullet fragments as they could, essentially without making any more incisions into me. And then after x-rays and everything, they just decided, hey, we're just going to keep the bleeding controlled and um, leave most of the bullets in there. So I still have bullet fragments in my chest cavity, in my back. I have a bullet in my head. Um, and from there, it was just, you know, just healing, you know, and, and keeping close monitor on me. Did the bullet that hit you in the head actually penetrate your skull? It, it didn't. Uh, so it gave me a skull fracture, 
but it stopped somewhere in my skull. Obviously, it gave me a pretty good concussion, and I actually uh, later they later diagnosed me with a traumatic brain injury, um, a mild one. But no, they uh, obviously I don't think it did. You know, they said it may have caused some. You know, when they do like the scans down the road, you know, going through workman's comp, they said I had some like bruising um, in my brain. But other than that, you know, nothing. I, I was I was extremely fortunate, obviously. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying the Street Cop podcast, do us a favor and go with, give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Tell a friend. We don't charge anything for the episodes. We appreciate your support. Check us out on any social platform by putting into the search bar Street Cop Training. Give us a follow. We have a lot of free content coming out every single day that you might not catch here on the podcast, and it's important for you to be able to do your job more professionally, and we also entertain you as well. Man, this and is I'm hard-headed, a- apparently. <laughs> It's a good thing for the first time in your life. Yeah, no shit, huh? So, you know, you're at the hospital. Does your wife go to the hospital with you in the ambulance? Yeah. So she rode in the hospital. We kind of get separated at some point. She kind of has to go get treatment for her injuries. I get treatment for mine. And then, um, you know, I don't know how long it took hours. I mean, I I remember being in the trauma room and our sheriff coming in to see me. And he's just got like tears in his eyes. You know, first time this has happened, you know, I think in the history of our department, that an officer was shot on duty. And um, he's like, man, I thought you were dead. So, you know, you're, he said that all he heard was Frank's been shot. He got shot with an AK-47 and one of the bullets hit him in the head. He got shot in the head and somewhere else in his body. And so everybody, you know, that is hearing this information that isn't on scene and actually physically seeing me that I'm okay is going, holy shit, he got shot in the head with an AK-47. He's obviously dead, you know? And you know how these things go where they say, okay, yeah, he was rushed to the hospital with a gunshot to the head. And you're thinking, okay, he's dead, you know? Um, But luckily for me, uh, I'm not dead. And um, yeah, so that that, that was harder, I think, for most people. And, you know, talking to a lot of guys after, a lot of guys showed up at the hospital and didn't want to leave. You know, they're getting like in 415s with the staff. I'm sorry, I use codes. I don't yeah, know we know that, what that means. I know what a 415. Okay. It, that's not a universal code, but I'm guessing they're fighting with them. Yeah, yeah, because they don't want to leave. You know, my wife doesn't want to leave, but they're like trying to keep me separated. And they give you like, so at least in California, they give you like a, a name tag that isn't your name and a date of birth that isn't your name. So that if like the media or somebody calls and says, hey, is Ryan Frank there? Is he okay? Like, what's the status? They're like, we don't have a patient here by that name. So like, People are getting super frustrated. They're trying to almost hide the fact that I'm there for some reason. Um, I'm sure it's just some off or some hospital procedures. So um, it was difficult. People had to like sneak in the back door, know a security guard and give them like 20 bucks to get up to come see me as I'm recovering because it was like, nobody's allowed to see this guy. Um, yeah. So it was, it was interesting. So your wife is separated from you. You get put under, they check you. They make a decision that, all right, we're going to just sew this motherfucker back up. Yeah. And then do you remember coming to and where you were? It's the first memory you had after coming out of whatever kind of exploratory suturing and, and, uh, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's kind of choppy. Like I remember being in the trauma room and then talking to the doctor, seeing my sheriff. Um, I don't think my wife ever made it into that area. I remember her coming into ICU. Um, so at some point they put me up in ICU, you know, I remember my wife being in there and at first they were like, not going to allow her to be in the room with me, but shit, I think she slept in the bed next with me for the next four days that we were there. Um, so I'm in ICU for like two days. And, um, I remember she still had her phone. My phone got left in the car. So, um, I remember getting a call when I'm in ICU, probably three or four hours after the incident from one of my SWAT buddies. And he's like, bro, it's so good to hear your voice. You know, we're out here. We're going to find these motherfuckers that got, that got you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Because I'd already heard at some point when I came into ICU that the suspect was found dead in his vehicle and that I had shot him multiple times. So I knew that. So that was obviously relieving for me to hear. And as, you know, freaking barbaric as that sounds, if you're in a shooting and someone tries to murder you and murder your wife, and you're a police officer that trains for this. This is your Super Bowl, right? You don't want to be the guy that, um, you know, gets shot and then doesn't get the opportunity to stop that threat. You know, so I think it was good for me mental health wise to know that 
I had returned fire. I did my job and, you know, the threat had been stopped and no other people were harmed because of him. And that's not a knock on guys who don't, you know, who get shot and don't get the opportunity to return fire, you know, um, because every, every situation is different. Um, it's just, I know that if I had been in that situation, it would have been a lot more difficult to deal with if I knew that, Hey, this guy just shot me and I didn't get the opportunity to return fire. I feel like I would have had a harder time dealing with this incident and maybe, you know, lack some confidence in my abilities because of it. So kind of going back to that. Uh, yeah. So yeah, he's like, Hey, we're going to get these guys. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There was one guy. And he's like, Oh no. Like we were told like four people with long guns footballed from the car when it crashed. And we found one guy dead. And I'm like, no, that's crazy. There's, there's one guy in the car. So what had happened is nobody really got my, you know, um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank, public safety statement on scene. Um, so they didn't know how many shooters there were or anything. Well, when he crashes, you know, typical citizens, they want to rush to try and help this person that just crashed. So citizens are running up to this vehicle. Well, uh, Highway Patrolman is about 100 yards away because he's waiting for multiple units before he approaches this car and he gets on his PA and he's like, hey, get away from that car. The guy in that car just shot a cop. So people are now running from the car. Like, you know, citizens are running away like, oh shit, you know, we're getting out of here. Well, then other witnesses who hear that PA and see people run go, oh man, people running with a long gun. You know, they just start kind of, kind of making things up as sometimes witnesses do. You can't always believe what witnesses say. So there for a while, there was multiple SWAT teams from different counties and our SWAT team at our sheriff's office, you know, looking for these people that didn't exist. So it took them several hours, I think like six to 10 hours later until they finally said, okay, we're hundred percent confident. There was just the one guy in the car. Um, so it was, it was this big ordeal at the time. It's very interesting. You think one person would have said, hey, call the hospital. If that cop's awake, go ask him. Was there more than one shooter? Right? I mean, yeah. this is definitely not Monday morning quarterbacking. But, like, at some point, you got to say to yourself, or, hold on. We're Like, are we – is there veracity or corroborating the story? Like, you know, do or have we – just call that guy and see what we got going on over here. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I told the sheriff that, you know, and then – but I – I may have been a little guilty at two, at first too, because, you know, I'm freaking groggy. I'm on dope. And he's like, are you sure there's nobody else in the car? And I'm like, well, shit, like his windows were tinted. I only saw him. And then it was like down the line. I'm like, I'm 100% sure that there was just one guy in the car, you know, but I think um, the fact that they saw people football, I'm like, well, fuck, maybe I'm fucked up my head. You know, I got shot in the head. Maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. You know? Oh, so shit. I think they just wanted to vet that and make sure, but yeah, I mean, my, our sheriff specifically asked me, Hey, was there one guy? And I said, yes, there was. And I think they were just trying to vet some of that information just to be sure for public safety reasons. So dude, where's the kids during all of this? My kids? Yeah. Well, um, I have an ex-wife. So I think at that time they would either be with my mom who babysits them, you know, and they're, they're little at this time. I mean, shit, this was five years ago. My oldest is nine. Um, so they're just little guys. And, um, they, they could have either been with their, their mom, but I mean, getting to see them afterwards, you know, I, I didn't tell them for several years that, you know, I had been shot, you know, um, it was just kind of like, I, I, my arm was in a sling cause I had broken my scapula and I had some wounds obviously that I could kind of cover with a shirt. And then obviously the wound on my head. And I just told him, Oh, dad fell down at work and I got hurt, you know, cause I think, gosh, my oldest probably was four at the time. It's young. Yeah. So um, now they think it's cool. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, my dad got shot. He's tough, you know. And so but yeah, at the time, I kind of restricted them from that, you know, side of things. So I remember, oddly enough, makes me think of it. I remember, you know, they do like a critical incident debrief and somebody had forgot to like invite me and my wife to this debrief that they had planned. So I get a call and my, you know, we're chilling at home watching TV or something. And they're like, Hey, uh, your debrief, are you going to come to your debrief? And I'm like, Oh man, like nobody told me about it. And they're like, Oh, can you come down here? And I'm like, well, I have my kids. And they're like, yeah, bring them, you know, whatever family friendly. Oh, fuck. And I'm like, I can't bring my kids to this. So we ended up pushing it off and doing it at a different time. So do your 
kids now knowing you were shot? Does it ever bother them? Are they like extra scared now, you think, or? No, I don't think so. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, now that my kids are older, you know, especially my two older, cause I have a seven, almost eight year old and a nine year old. And, um, so the younger ones, cause I have a little guy too, uh, you know, that obviously I had after the shooting, but, um, you know, I, I try and instill in them the fact that bad things are going to happen. You know, bad things are going to happen to you in your life, whether you're a police officer or not. And especially if you're a police officer, obviously you're adding to the fact that you could be involved in a critical incident or, you know, a fight for your life, you know, and, and it'll probably happen more than once in your career. And I think the fact that you have to approach this with the fact that you have to be prepared. That's why dad goes to work and he trains guns. That's why dad does combatives. That's why dad does jujitsu. That's why dad does all these things. So I can be better prepared for a deadly encounter. And we, it, being a police officer, it can't just be a job. It's a profession and it's a profession that has to be your freaking number one hobby. And that's cool if you like to shoot and that's cool if you like to do jujitsu and that's cool if you like to fish, but is fishing going to help you be a better cop? No, it's not. Is it going to help you to have a full career and make it to retirement, you know, with all your freaking limbs attached? No, it's not. So, I mean, and I'm not, you know, you should do those things for sure, but almost being a police officer has to be your number one freaking hobby. You have to be constantly looking at, you know, street cop podcasts and listening to guys, you know, like I just listened to the one you got, you had a guy on talking about complacency and man, I brought that back to my department. I'm like, you got to listen to this shit. Like this is shit that we do every day that we don't have to do. And, and, and we're doing it for reasons that, oh, we don't want to be the guy that's asking for a back because it makes us look weak. Or we're mad that that more senior officer is going to give us a hard time or whatever. It's like, no, we need to do this shit the right way all the time and be consistent in our workouts and our training combatives and our firearms training and staying up to date on case law so we can make sound decisions. And if you don't have a passion for law enforcement in everything that it involves, then for one, you're going to end up getting yourself in trouble, you know, with your department internally or criminally because you made a poor decision um, and violated someone's rights or worse, you know, or if you're not working out and you're not in shape, then you're going to get hurt and you're going to have a knee injury. I mean, not that you can, you can have an injury regardless, but you're going to get hurt. And you're not going to be able to bounce back from that injury. So there's so many things that go into this job. And if you go into it with a negative attitude and basically say like, well, I don't want to have to do all this shit. I have a family. Well, it's like, yeah, and encompass your family. My kids are not even 10 and they work out with me every day. You know, uh, my, my kids do jujitsu with me, you know, so my kids go shooting with me. You know, it's like, you have to involve your family and your wife, your kids, they all have to buy in on this career, I think. And that's, that's the way to have the most successful career and still have fun with it. Cause it is a great freaking job, man. We have uh, a great opportunity. It's a rewarding job. The bonds you form with the men and women that you work with are like nothing you'll ever experience in this life. And uh, I think if you do it right and you have the right attitude and mindset, this can be a great career still, even, even in light of some recent changes. Can we just agree? No more family ride-alongs. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. My wife loves to do ride-alongs, you know. Um, Go with somebody else then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you got to be careful, dude. You got to be careful. She's going to ride yeah. with a female police officer. But even then, you got to be careful as well. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is a no, you're strange right. you're profession. Right. Yeah, luckily I have a partner now, so like the seat's taken, you know. Um, but no, I, I think that's you know my wife's a total stud, and um, you know I sent uh, your guy the audio clips. I don't know if you guys are going to play them or not, but you hear her call in, and I mean you would never know that freaking five seconds ago she was just getting shot at and shot because she's just so cool, calm, and collected, and given that you know important information out, you know, so the other officers have that information and. You know, because that's the thing, like, yeah, you've been shot and you're wounded and it's chaos, but you have to realize there's still work to do. You know, the job's not done until the bad guy's in custody, or at least we can take a pause and set up a perimeter or something. But we can't just say, oh, shit, I've been shot. Like, I'm just going to lay here, you know, or or whatever. You know, you, you got to continue that call until the end so that other people are safe and yourself safe, too. So what was the deal with the suspect? 
what was why did why did this go down? What was in the car? What was his history like? I don't want to give too much clout. You don't got to name the motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. No. Just, so he he had ties to drug trafficking. Um, he was from the Stockton area, which is a rough, which can have some rough areas. And what the investigators had learned is he was involved in drug trafficking. He had like a little over two pounds of coke in the car, cocaine. He had over twenty pounds of weed. Um, he had an AR, an AK-47. He had a hundred-round drum for his AK-47. He had ex- more extended, extendable magazines. He had a fifty-round drum for a Glock that he had in there. He had over a thousand rounds. So he was definitely involved in drug trafficking. He was having issues with his home life. They never really determined what his plans were because I feel like if you're a drug trafficker, you don't want to draw attention to yourself by removing your license plate. Um, that doesn't seem very common. Um, so I'm not sure if he had a plan to go be an active shooter or go rob somebody or what his deal was. Um, but he was definitely tied into like criminal activity. He didn't have an extensive criminal history or anything like that. We didn't have any local contact with him in the area, but, uh, something going back that I, that I did. And I always do is, you know, when you're running those people's names and you're, you're conducting business, that's your opportunity you know, to talk to them. So I said, Hey man, you know, like, what are you doing in this area? If you're from out of the area? Oh, I'm just here. I just drove here. And I'm like, okay, well, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go back home. Okay. So you left your house and you got here to this community that has no, no reason for you to be here. And you took your plate off and now you're going to drive home. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't make any sense. So look for those indicators, you know, that something more is going on. And it, that's what, you know, allows me to continue to kind of dig and prolong my investigation, you know, so that I eventually get into a vehicle search. And, and that's the kind of things that we do every day as cops. Um, you just never know, you know, what it's going to lead to. If it's going to lead to a shooting or if it's going to lead to a good arrest. Because obviously, if this didn't lead to a shooting and I'm able to get a hold of him outside and detain him, it's going to lead to a great arrest. So, yeah, you're on a, a great lead there, right? Two pounds of Coke, 20 pounds of weed, guns. Yeah. It ended up being the, not the kind of pop you wanted, I guess. Yeah, no, it uh, it definitely would have been a good one. That would have been a good social media post, you know. So, I mean, I think you could still claim that that's your shit because you're yeah. initiated contact. It's your job, bro. Yeah, hell yeah, yeah. You ever think about how many people you saved by actually being proactive and getting involved with that dude that day? Does that cross your, your mind? Yeah, you know, um, it being five years ago, you know, you definitely have reflection. Um, of it. And it's kind of scary, you know, to think about what was this dude's plan. And uh, even though, you know, I was wounded and had to do a rehab to get back to my job and obviously deal with um, mentally overcoming the fact that I was shot and wounded, I wouldn't change anything about it because of the fact that you just never know what this dude's ultimate plan was, what his ultimate goal was, and how many people you could have hurt especially if he caught them off guard. You know, the fact, I, I don't think in his plans that day, his plan was to uh, get contacted by a police officer who kind of dictated the way that encounter went. You know, I think if his plan was to attack a police officer, I think he would have liked it to be on his terms. Earlier, when you were telling the story, you said that he escaped your grasp when he's going back to the car. Were you training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu back then? I wasn't. Um, I wasn't training back then. Um, you know, and I think as cops, it, it goes back to that complacency thing, right? Like 99% of the time when we get in fights, we win. We win those fights because for one, uh, the person doesn't really want to hurt us. They just want to get away. And so maybe they're not trying to like kill us in most scenarios. Um, so we're able to overcome their resistance or we get other officers there and you know, with two or three of us, we're able to get them into custody or we use something on our tool belt, like a taser or pepper spray, and it works. Um, so I think you get into this habit of, and, and for me, especially being a canine handler, you know, I, I was very successful deploying my dog. You know, I had over 30 physical apprehensions in five years. And I, I think I got this complacency, almost tombstone courage, whereas if something goes wrong, I can just door pop, you know, and uh, my dog will bail me out or whatever, or we'll fight this guy or gal together and get him in custody. And, you know, I learned after this incident, it took me a long time, you know, to realize it, but, you know, you have to train these combatives 
whatever it is, whether it's jujitsu, judo, wrestling, whatever, whatever techniques you want to use. Um, obviously I would just encourage that when you train these things, they're more applicable to our job. Cause obviously if you're training how to do an Ezekiel choke, you know, it's like, well, you can't do that on the job unless it's a deadly force scenario. So, you know, I would focus my attention more towards like wrist locks, arm locks and control holds that way. But, you know, go, going back to it, it's, it's one of these things where most of the time when we get in fights, even if we don't have a fighting background um, or we wrestled in high school, whatever we win. Well, you got to train for those times when you're going to fight some dude that wants to kill you. And he may have a martial arts background, you know, so you got to be able to stay cool, calm and collected. And that's the biggest thing with training combatives is man for nothing else. It teaches you how to be calm in a fight because any fight I'd ever been in before I started training, you know, you, you just fight, you know, you kind of spaz out and throw punches or kicks or chokes or whatever. And you're just fighting, you know, people are throwing hands. And what you learn is once you start training these things that the other guy is the one that's freaking out and he's spazzing out and you're completely calm and control. You're saving your energy. You're using your body and your techniques that you learned and you're way more successful. You think he would have escaped your grasp had you been trained? Probably not. No, mm. I mean, you, you never know. I mean, the thing is, you know, if somebody really wants to get away and you're standing up and he darts past you, like that's what this scenario was. So I really didn't have, I mean, if I had had him in a standing modified or some kind of searching technique where I had a good grasp of him already, there's no way I believe he would have this time uh, if the scenario was set up differently. But in that particular scenario, I don't know. It would have been tough. People don't want to quantify the price we pay when they don't want to change. They don't want to train. It's, it's, it's flabbergasting that literally you're in a job that is probably the most dangerous job in America. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah, just take it lightly. It's no big deal. Like it's never going to happen to me. Yeah. And you know, that's the other thing is like, even if you work for a department, like the department I work for now, man, they push training hard. We're doing, you know, at least one firearms training a month and it's good freaking training. It's training that, you know, every month we have a group of range masters that putting out training that's realistic you know, to, to training that we might, if we do have to discharge our firearm, like setting you up for the real world and trying to get the best equipment for us to succeed. And then also, you know, we do, you know, we started, we started incorporating the Gracie, Gracie survival training. Um, you know, Koga is really big out here on the West coast and we're kind of transitioning from Koga into that Gracie survival training and shoot just a couple months ago, we had a freaking 10 hour training day for all our officers. So you know, I think it's, I think a lot of it's on the departments. They have to be pushing out this training. We need to train more, you know, and, and that's going to keep cops not only safer, but it's going to keep them out of, you know, legal issues or IAs for excessive use of force. If they're, if they're constantly doing the things that are right, because if you do one, four hour defensive tactics training a year, you're, you're not going to utilize any of those things. You're going to use what comes naturally to you. So we have to make these movements and these that we're learning that work that are successful, that have been proven to be successful, like the Gracie survival training. And we got to do them periodically, often. And then if your department's not providing it for you, then you got to do it on your own. Like I'm a busy guy. I got kids in softball, soccer, judo, all this stuff. So I train one day a week. You know, I try and train too, but I make sure like today, Monday, every Monday I'm training for at least an hour. And same thing with working out, you know, like, Try and work out every freaking day. If you make a point to try and get some kind of, whether it's a freaking elliptical or a rower or going for a three mile run or something, just carve out that time every day. I guarantee you we have that time every day. And then so that way, if your goal is to train every day and get some kind of workout in every day, there's going to be days where something pops up. Oh shit, I got to take the kid to the dentist. I forgot about that. Or I got this going on. Or we planned a family trip or we're going on vacation. If you if your goal is to do it every day, then you're going to consistently do that, and so you can afford to miss every once in a while, or you get the flu or whatever. How about twice a day? Yeah, twice a day is good, man. That's good. That's even better. Yeah, twice Hell a day. Yeah. And I always tell people like that's funny that you bring up that theory, and I know I've brought it up here on the podcast a thousand times. I'm pretty consistent with twice a day for almost, I think I'm coming up on almost two years now, and um, I probably just need to. My diet's not horrendous. But in order to get that final result, I know we're kind of getting off the oh, beaten yeah. path here. Oh, but hell yeah. like, uh, as to what you said, it leaves so much margin to miss. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, 
you know, freaking, Hey, yeah, you just pissed in my Cheerios. Cause I'm like, work out every day. And you're like, fuck that twice a day, you know? And, and that's the kind of, that's why networking and surrounding yourself by freaking good, hardworking dudes is important because, you know, like for instance, the agency I work out, man, I work out with some freaking, I mean, I freaking work with some total beats, you know, and, and they're just like, Hey bro, hour before we start, let's, let's freaking get a workout in, let's get a CrossFit workout in, or let's get a run in, you know? And, and that kind of culture is so important in your job. You know, we have a gym at our work. I have a little bit of a gym in my garage that I use. And then, you know, it's like, if nothing else, it's like, okay, I did freaking a hundred pull-ups yesterday. I don't feel like repping out pull-ups. I'll just freaking go for a run. Just do something to keep that edge. And you're going to feel so much freaking better. There ain't nobody that like, nobody really wants to go work out, you know, unless you're just like a total like freak, but like you feel so much better afterwards, you know, and that's the key. I'm a dude. I'm, I'm addicted to the result. I just, yeah. but anyway, let's, let's go back to this a little bit. And, and I didn't mean to make this about me. I oh, just, no, no, no. It's all good. I, yeah, I needed I, a break I, from talking. I talked too much. No, no, you actually have talked perfectly to be quite honest. Yeah. What if you didn't have the medical training and the gear that there are literally people who were like, this is how fucking nuts this industry is. I don't know what it's going to take to grab people by the fucking face and scream at them. But one, people are like, I don't want to invest in training. We know for a fact that training fixes everything. Like it just does. You're yeah. increasing your odds tremendously of actually surviving or making a good call or whatever it may be. So number one, when I hear a story like this, I look at like Sean Barnett who teaches our tactical medical training and his numbers are not the best ones in the company. And it's because people think they don't need medical training. So the first one is people are like, I'm not going to invest in myself, but then you'll see their fucking F-150 like lifted, right? And like, yeah. like you know, $20,000 worth of extras, right? But they yeah. don't want to invest in themselves to stay alive. And number two, they don't want to spend the money because the company or the police department won't give them the equipment they need. They're like, I don't need an IFAC kit. They're 110 bucks. And that same person's at what? at a honky tonk on fucking Saturday buying shots for their friends. Yeah. It's like, where are your priorities at? So with that being said, what if you didn't have that training or that gear that day? Well, where would you be? Yeah. I, I don't even want to think about it. You know, uh, I'd probably be dead for sure. Um, you know, and it's funny because I had multiple dudes that I work with, you know, guys who are on, were on the SWAT team with me that came up to me after this incident, after some dust had settled and I've been released from the hospital. And they're like, bro, I'm so glad you are the guy who contacted him. And they didn't say that like in a negative way. It was a positive. It was like, we know because we see you at the range, we see how serious you take training every time we're doing training days that you were going to handle yourself appropriately. And obviously I did, you know, and I think having that reputation in your job is important. And when you have a reputation like that, you can't take it lightly. You can't, if you have the reputation of a leader, I mean, let's be honest, everybody who's ever worked, there's guys on every shift that people just kind of look up to, whether it's, you know, they're cunning and they're smart and they say things and they make everybody laugh or whatever, or they just, the way they handle themselves on the streets is good. Those kind of dudes, you're a leader in your department. You need to go to your freaking trainings, whether it's DTAC training, medical training, first aid training, and you need to be assertive, asking good questions and taking that shit seriously. Because almost like when you go to a law enforcement training, it's like high school, you know, everybody just wants to fuck off. Like they don't want to be like, Oh yeah, let me just work on this throw or whatever. And we just, it's almost like we're too cool to take it seriously. You know, um, dude, that's, that is your time to get better at your craft. You know, it's cool to joke around with your buddies and have fun in a training environment. But, and I'm just as guilty of it, but I also take that shit seriously and I'm competitive. And, you know, when we go out and we shoot, you know, cause I'm on our SWAT team now at the agency I work, we go out and we shoot, dude, I am not the best shot. I am not the strongest guy. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not the best at combatives, but I'll, I'll tell you what, dude, I'm going to go out there every time and try and be the best and try and push other people to do their best. And we have to have that culture in law enforcement where we're striving to do the absolute best that we can. Like, oh no, I suck at shooting and I'm embarrassed. So I don't want to go out and shoot or I'm just going to pretend like I don't give a fuck and shoot my buddy's target or whatever. You know, you have to want to be good at what you do, you know? And, and when you have that, a group of guys that have that mindset or gals, you know, it, it's freaking, it's a game changer, you know? And, 
And, and if you don't have that training and you're involved in a deadly encounter and you didn't take your shit seriously, you're going to fucking regret it. You're going to regret it because you're going to get seriously hurt or killed. That actually answered one of my final questions, but I have other ones as well. But my, one of my questions was what advice do you have for others? I think you just summed it up. So there's no need to be redundant. I heard two important things that you repeated over and over again that could have maybe changed the circumstances of the situation. And I try to emphasize this, but I think what happens is we dilute the word in training and it's complacency. I think yeah. it gets diluted and diluted because they don't really understand the context of it. And every cop gets sick of hearing the word complacency. Yeah. Maybe we should come up with another word that defines this thing that you must take so importantly, because it's not just you, it's other guys and girls, military, law enforcement. It, they repeat the same thing. I got complacent. And yeah. it's fucking crazy because you hear that your whole career and it's actually the truth. And I don't know how to get these men and women to understand the actual meaning of what it means to be complacent. And if you'd like to know what complacency is, you know, you wouldn't have to go pretty far to watch some videos of yeah. how expensive complacency actually is. Yeah. And I'm trying to be nice. And that comes from a place of me caring and having to say the truth about what other people have lost because they didn't take shit seriously. Not everybody. I always say in my class, I wish I could bring back these people and you can interview them and get advice from them. But the closest thing we get are podcast episodes like this with guys like you. Yeah. So take it very fucking seriously. And then I also heard that don't be afraid to call for backup. Another yeah. thing, you know, so I want to just echo that for everybody. I don't know what everybody's missing. I don't know why people are letting anxiety dictate their decision and judgment in the field. And I think the more you train and dude, I'm inspired to like really put a lot of cool training products together. We have something called street cop university coming out. And I'm just, I'm just so amped because I believe that this is the next puzzle piece for me to help a mass amount of police officers globally get better at this because we have the product. We have the advice. We don't have it all, but we have enough to really change and impact things. And now we're taking it very digital and very affordable. I mean, it's been pretty much affordable, but to the point where hopefully everybody can get their hands on what exactly it is that they need to survive this stuff. I guess my last question is, why didn't you retire after the shooting? You know, I think I was 29 when this happened and I didn't want, I, I think, you know, when you get into law enforcement, you know, you're told from the academy, you know, maybe even before that, when you start doing ride-alongs or whatever, or just doing research, you know, you're told that you could get shot, that you could be in a shooting, that bad things could happen to you and you're better trained. So you're going to survive. And I think this was a good example of that for me, you know, is, you know, I knew I'm out there pushing the limits every day, going after really bad guys, you know, getting in foot pursuits, canine deployments, vehicle pursuits, you know, you know, the risk and, and the risk is amplified by how proactive you are. Um, you know, so it's extremely important to take your training seriously. Like we've, like we've said, I know I'm freaking beating a dead horse here, but not only that, and, and try and constantly get, get out of bad habits. Like for instance, I didn't call for a back this day, but I was consistently not calling for a back. It wasn't like I just didn't do it this one time. I was doing it on my own all the time. So we got to get out of bad habits and we got to have thick skin when people give us advice. And, you know, to answer your question, why didn't I retire is I just wasn't done yet, man. I didn't want this guy to dictate when I retire. I love this job. I still have a passion for this job, you know, and, and fortunately for this story, I get to go to academies and teach on officer survival. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's open doors for me to be able to network with guys like you. And I just, I'm not knocking anybody who does medically retire because I, my injuries weren't as severe um, as other people's, but I wanted to do everything I could to get back and prove to myself and the guys that I worked with that I still had what it takes, um, that I could get through this, you know, freaking deadly encounter and my physical injuries and get back and do the job and do it the same way that I've always done it. And uh, it, it's, it's gratifying to be able to be back where I am and still freaking grinding and out there and still hunting bad guys every day. Well, Rye, I, uh, 
think this is a good place to end. And I, yeah. I want to thank you so much for your service to everybody and taking the time today to share your story because this was a good one. And I got to tell you, I think people are going to get a lot of value. And the bigger the podcast grows, a lot of people are going to listen to this and it makes a lot. Of, so maybe somebody will hear this and buy that IFAC, get that training, yeah. sign up, take this shit seriously today, go to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, work out, whatever it may be. But uh, with that being said, dude, I appreciate it so much. Hey, I appreciate you for, ha for having me, man. It's, it's been awesome. It's good to uh, actually meet with you face to face. So, Yeah, one day in real life. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, bro. Thank you so much. All right. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then you could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher, so you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong, and at the maximum, going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.